This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDRIFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Of the many photographers who I wished I could have interviewed but never got the chance to was Gordon Parks. Thankfully, I had the chance to meet him several times, including a couple of hours at his apartment in New York City, just across the way from the United Nations building. It was rather a surreal experience. As he sat there having breakfast of a poached egg and coffee, I looked around the apartment that was filled with items of his career and life. I recognized so many things, having read his first two autobiographies. The galley of his third was sitting on the coffee table in front of me, with prints he was considering for its publication. He was kind and generous, but despite that, I was incredibly nervous, so much so that I didn't even think to ask to make his photograph. Nevertheless, I have a wonderful memory. When the latest collection of his photographs, The Atmosphere of Crime, 1957, was released late last year, I immediately bought a copy. The images are from one of his assignments for Life magazine, where he was a staff photographer beginning in the 1950s. In it, he was assigned to document the effect of crime and policing in largely black communities throughout the country. The photographs reflect his talent as a storyteller and an artist, but also the realities of his existence as a black man in America. Sarah Meister, who was a curator at New York's Museum of Modern Art, worked in conjunction with the Parks Foundation to produce this book and an exhibit which is currently on display. I thought that it would provide me a wonderful opportunity to explore a small segment of Gordon's career. Not only is she well versed on his life and work, she also has two decades of experience as a curator for MoMA. She will be soon leaving the museum and taking the helm of the nonprofit organization Aperture later in the year. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to Thank have you. Thank you. And I even have my book with me. Yes, I do. I, I okay, in case you. I need as it. As soon as I found out about it, I, I, I got it. Just because I'm a fan of Gordon, it's sold out. I, by the way, they they had oh, they had yeah. to go to a second printing. So and they all it's not doesn't always happen. Yeah, even I have, with Gordon Parks. I think I have most of his books. So yeah. I even have moments without a proper name, which took me a while to track down. Wow! But I have to say, when I looked through that the book, the atmosphere of crime, 1957, I had such a new appreciation for Gordon's talent than. I think I had before and because I'd only seen the images that are in this book and that are in the exhibition that you can talk to us about had been in just reproductions of the spread 
in Life magazine. So I really hadn't, really didn't have an appreciation for the aesthetics of the photographs themselves. They're pretty amazing. And when I saw those photographs, not only was I struck by, by, by their beauty, but it finally clicked for me what he was doing with the way that he photographed the people you know, the, the black people that he was covering that in relationship with the, um, you know, the police, because he was doing this article for Life magazine for people who don't know on, on crime in, in the country. So he traveled different places uh, around the country and largely it was focused on, on the black, uh, black community. This is one of, one of his first, if not the first assignment that he had for, for life. Well, he had actually been a staff photographer for Life magazine for for almost a decade. So, no, he had done other uh, oh, photo okay. stories for Life magazine. He had even done one other notable uh, story in color and um, segregation story the previous year. So, but I, I take that as an expression of they the editors knew this was an incredibly important story, and in all of the preliminary meta, uh, memos where they're leading up to it, you can tell that they are only going to give this to somebody that they trust entirely. And so mm. it's really an expression of their confidence in him that they ask him to do it. It is fascinating to me that they that there was no record of them mentioning that they wanted a black photographer to do this. And I find that surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, I think one of the, the, one of the most important aspects of, of seeing the work, especially currently, is that uh, the fact that it was a black photographer, and, and especially such an accomplished photographer as Gordon, is that you can see the choices in how he chose to make the photographs was a direct reflection of not just the color of his skin, but his, of his awareness of the relationship between the police and the black community and, and the, and the negative imagery of blacks in the country in the middle of the 20th century. It's an, it's an absolute expression of a belief structure. It's not, you know, in other words, it's a, it's an artistic sensibility that can sort of wrestle with how you make something look so cinematic that you can't Mm -hmm. turn away how you, you know, evoke these jewel tones. And let me tell you, the world didn't look like that. He just made it look like that. But the idea of his, his understanding of this as an assignment it was an expression of broader societal ills. You know, he he understood that he was using his camera as a weapon against discrimination, against poverty, against forces that were much larger than the ambition, I think, of the editors when they asked him to look at this particular um, subject. And yeah, and indeed, and in so many of them, you know, he's making a picture that you, you can't look away from until you've actually grappled mm-hmm. with what what he's included and what he's left out. Do you have the benefit of being able to read uh, some of the correspondence between him and the and the editors? We looked. I wish there had been uh, there. We were not able to find any correspondence between Parks and the editors. We did at the New York Historical Society. They have the Time Life archives. So we found a lot of the and by we, I actually mean an incredible research assistant who was working for the Parks Foundation. And we were all working closely together, but just to, she did an amazing job. So she dug out every memo, every scrap of paper that could be found there. The most revelatory of these 
was the memo that the editors wrote in arguing for the series as a whole, arguing mm -hmm. for why. And it's interesting that the tension between the very nuanced and I would argue aligned and attentive positions of the editors in the way that they frame this. They understood that it was a subject that was riddled with complications that extended beyond what they were going to be able to solve. They understood how statistics could be misused in the service of creating an alarmist environment that was often not what reflecting of reality. They, they understood a lot of things. But it is also interesting that the captions that appeared below Parks's photographs are depressingly predictable and run counter to the memos that, that I, I read the memos and I was like, okay, you know, they're really trying to do some good here. They're really trying to, and the article, the longer article, which was written by Robert Wallace, is actually a very persuasive piece that has, I mean, there are some problems with it for sure, but but when you read the captions, it's like all of the subtlety that they were trying, that the editors seem to be aspiring to capture and all of the subtlety that's in Parks's work is undermined particularly by those captions. How, how did it come to be that... Um you guys worked with the Gordon Parks Foundation to do the exhibit. Well, the Parks Foundation does an amazing job of trying to partner with different curators and different American museums about to take little subsections of Parks's work and focus on them and really dive deep and use them as a way of understanding Parks's career. So we had been in dialogue with them for a very long time and there were two reasons why I felt that this story, and they agreed that this story was the right one for MoMA. One is that we knew that this was an important one, meaning thinking about crime in the U.S. is a consideration that should happen in a major urban area. So New York City seemed like a very good place to be thinking about crime and all of in all of this. But the other much more sort of practical reason was that in 1993, the museum acquired a photograph from Gordon Parks, a black and white photograph from this series that he gave to the museum in honor of Edward Steichen, who was the longtime director of the Department of Photography at MoMA. And so I knew that we had this one beautiful, large, early black and white print, and it seemed like building a nice context around that would be something that sort of spoke to the history of MoMA's connection with Parks. I found it fascinating that when I asked Peter Kunhart, who's the director of the Gordon Parks Foundation, I said, so, you know, was there a special relationship between Parks and Steichen? And, you know, did they, because I, 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 there isn't much evidence of it in the historical record. Peter smiled and he said, Actually, you know, he gave me a few examples of where their paths had crossed over time. He said, but actually, I think that the reason Parks gave those photographs in memory, in honor of Edward Steichen, was that in 1993, there was so little market for his work that when the museum asked him to buy them 
and he felt that he wasn't capable of naming a price that he thought I'll just give them in honor of Edward Steichen. That's and to me that feels so sad. I mean, you know, heartbreaking that an artist that great at you know at that many decades into his career might not have been able to point to a robust enough market mm-hmm. for his photographs. Yeah, that's amazing. These images because they were initially intended for reproduction in the in, in the magazine. Can you tell me something about the the rep- reproduction of the of the prints? Sure, um, sure. Were they made specifically for this exhibit or had they been created previously? So one of the interesting things I think about photography in general is there now that there is a photography market, there evolved with that a fetish for what people call the vintage print, you know, the print mm-hmm. made at or around the time that the negative was exposed. But it's important to remember that for much of photography's history, there may have been no vintage print. And the first prints that Parks made from these color slides, they weren't actually negatives, they were color slides, was what was published in the magazine. So millions and millions and millions of copies of his photographs that were reproduced in color in the magazine. But of course, that's an offset printing process. It is, you know, it barely captures the beauty and the range of from those gorgeous color slides. And so there are two examples we know of when Parks printed the work himself early on. Those two prints are black and white. And that's the one that MoMA acquired in 1993. And another one that the Parks Foundation generously gave the museum when we purchased all of the color prints from the series in 2019. Because, of course, not to focus too much on the economy of it, but it was prohibitively expensive to make a color print in the late 50s, early 60s. It was just not something that a photographer, you know, of average means could do. So when we, the Parks Foundation has done a really wonderful job of thinking about his career as a whole and appreciating that if Parks could have printed these in color at the time, he would have without question, you know. So they are very disciplined about editioning the work, about being very conscientious to try to capture the jewel-like tones to really make prints that are, are as atmospheric and as compelling as Parks would have made them. But they are without a doubt modern color prints. They're the ones that the museum acquired were printed mostly in 2019, the same year. And then the nice thing about that is that from a stability perspective, those prints that the museum purchased are prints that will stand the test of time. The color processes from the late 50s and early 60s, actually, those prints probably would have deteriorated greatly by now. So the pigmented inkjet prints that that are on view at the museum now, that the museum acquired, these are quite stable. And, you know, that makes me happy to think that future generations will be able to enjoy them looking exactly the way they look now. Yeah. You know, one of the the things that's really amazing, knowing that he shot slide film, which at the time would have been a very low high ISO. I don't know what, what the film was, whether it was rated at like 25, which I think probably is for that Probably. time was sort of state of the art yep. in terms of film technology. And when you take a look at the, uh, at the images, um, he's sh- shooting oftentimes in very low light situations. 
And I think that it's really fascinating to, to see that it was not only the fact that his, he has a very talented and purposeful eye, but also that the limitations of the film and the camera that he, he, he was likely using really informed the look and that he used it to his advantage rather than seeing it as a limitation. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that you, that you take grain and blur and silhouette mm -hmm. and all of the other things that emerge when you're using a handheld camera with color slide film in a low light situation. And you take all of them to protect the anonymity of somebody who might be accused of a crime. And you, you make them bring forward the very atmosphere that is the purpose of his, you know, it's the title and the purpose of his piece. And he, he, you know, the, he was definitely a master at making the, making the lemonade out of the, the lemons of the material because there were marked technical challenges that working with color slide film back then, I mean, and today actually, you know, everyone knows even on your iPhone, when you try to take it in a low light situation, it doesn't look as quote good. But if you take that challenge and you say, how do you make a picture that depends upon the grain, that depends upon the blur, that where the silhouette is a is um, a part of its power, you know, that's pretty amazing. In terms of the so images that you ended up exhibiting and um, seeing relative to what were, were published in the original article, tell me about what more you saw in terms of the transparencies that weren't they didn't, didn't end up originally published. Did you consider that for the book and the exhibit? Sure. So we, the Parks Foundation is incredibly organized. They have great archives. And so as soon as we sat down to really begin this project in earnest, they put in front of me a binder of every known slide, including duplicate slides, copies of the slides that was ever associated either directly with this project or they presume was associated with this project because not all were labeled perfectly. And we produce, we reproduced a few of these in the front of the book because they really do, you know, you can just see every label was hand typed. You know, you understand, it tells you about the history of the process. So we're taking all of these slides and surveying them and there were several hundred. So some were duplicates, but there was a lot of material to choose from. And this was one of the other nice things that was so great about working with everyone at the Parks Foundation is they gave me as a curator total freedom. So they said, well, what would you like, you know, how would you like to go forward? And they let me take a first stab at a selection and a sequence of pictures that almost constructed, from my mind, what I wanted to do was to sort of build chapters of the work. So looking at night, you know, looking in day, at night, in the precincts, in the prisons, you, and the work fell quite naturally into these. There were a handful of outliers that didn't, but often like the, the Alcatraz picture, that's the last one in the book, that didn't mm -hmm. really fall into the category, any of those categories, but it was such a beautiful picture. And then we had a really interesting dialogue about like, well, what about this one? Did you consider this variant? What? And, you know, like every good project, it benefits from both a lot of input from a lot of different sources yeah. and then also a willingness to say, okay, you're editing this book 
it's your choice in the end. So um, it was really a fun, wonderful process. I'm glad you're asking me because no one's asked me about how we came to this. So in the end, we had not quite 60 plates in the book, 59, I think. And the museum decided that we wanted to purchase all 60 of those, 59 of those for the museum collection. And then we thought a lot about what was going to be the right way to display these should they and we knew we wanted it to be a collection based display like a, mm-hmm. because that's sort of where the museum was going overall we thought maybe instead you know the book has everything in it so the museum's whole collection is reproduced in the book but we thought maybe it would be interesting to contextualize these to understand just how unique they are to look at other crime photographs in the collection and to reflect on a long and complicated history of photography and crime, stretching all the way back to mugshots from the 1860s and 70s, where their purported objective records were, of course, understood then to be false too. You know, that photography's failure to be a so-called objective record is a part of that story. And so the gallery begins with those and it comes all the way through to working with my colleagues in the film department and putting a clip from Parks' film Shaft from 1971, because that was a later engagement of for Parks with this subject and the really cinematic quality of the photographs almost anticipated that in a way that we thought we'd love to give that a taste of that to our audiences as well. And so the um, there's a little just a three minute clip from that also in the gallery. Yeah, I can I, I really made a connection between the visual look of the images in the book, not directly to Shaft, but his first film, The Learning Tree. Mm hmm. You know, in terms of the way he uses sort of the color palette and the way that he uses the limited depth of field, you you can really see the connection. You see that it's coming from the same from the same person, from the same yeah. same artist. I mean, it's astounding the number of media in which he did such a you know, oh, he was yeah. a great writer, he was a great musician, he's a great filmmaker, a great photographer. So we certainly wanted, you know, even in the context of this gallery installation to try to sort of point outward in that way. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the challenges you, I, I'm curious if if you considered is that, you know, the voice of the of the author in this case the photographer is always a big consideration. Not only the images they shot, but how they choose to re- reproduce them, you know, how they choose to cull and put them together. And with the magazine article, that was largely in the hands of the editor. Mm-hmm. You know, and and now with you as 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 a curator, it's being much left to you and and your team and your basically using the what came out in the magazine as sort of a, a touchstone for it. But so, yeah, but not too careful of a touchstone because of course, you know, while Parks I think was generally happy with this story, meaning he's on the record of being very unhappy with the way Harlem gang leader, for instance, right. came out. Mm-hmm. So and we have no there's no written record of his dissatisfaction with the way the photographs at least were edited. So it's a it's a point of departure, but we appreciate it's not him. Yeah, I would say it's with great humility that you that you approach any artist's body of work and say, like, who am I to say that I like these pictures and not these others? And 
what gives me confidence in that is the transparency of it, meaning this is my, you know, it's that my name is for better or worse associated with this selection Mm -hmm. so that I'm not pretending that this was, would have been Parks's choice. I'm owning that this is my take on it. And I try in that to honor the things that I see him honoring either because I see that he made a lot of pictures of certain subjects so that I knew he, that it was, I could tell it was important to him just on the basis of the evidence that's left behind. But I also know he valued powerful photographs and not just ones that illustrated an idea, you know, a sort of empty idea. When you know, the book is filled with examples of really great pictures. And so I do think that as a, you know, I, I've worked at MoMA a very long time. And while I think it was a uh, minor white in Aperture magazine in the fifties, he said something, well, ultimately criticism is intuitive. And I think it's true. Criticism is intuitive. You know, you can't, you can't say like, this is what makes a good picture and go down a checklist and mm-hmm. say, okay, it's good if it's in focus or if it's good, if the tonal range is uh, gentle or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I, I fancy I can spot a good picture. And so it, on that, on that basis, I, I felt okay about this. Yeah. Th- this was happening simultaneously as a lot of unrest was happening because of uh, the deaths of numerous uh, people of color at the hands of, of police. And I, I know that was not lost on you and the team, but I'm wondering how those circumstances may have touched on choices and considerations of how you saw the work and, and what you were doing with it. Well, we had finished everything. Everything had been selected, sequenced. I had at, We had asked Nicole Fleetwood and Brian Stevenson to contribute essays to the book. They had done that. All of this was done early 2019. So we, you know, we, Mm. um, so I'll say I'm glad that we had the good sense to know that as a white woman curator looking at this work, I did not want to be the only voice whose perspective was coming to bear on it. That felt grossly irresponsible. I had no interest in that. The Parks Foundation had no interest in that. Or I should say the conversation in which they delicately raised the possibility of my not being the only author and my simultaneously confessing to them how badly I didn't want to be the only author. It was the same conversation. So there was no, (laughs) um, we agreed. So, um, but all of that was so long before George Floyd, at least. However, unfortunately, you know, the events of, May 2020 are not unique. And there is, I'm glad there is a greater consciousness around this. I'm glad there's a deeper dialogue. I'm grateful that the book managed to be printed because in Italy, it's considered an essential industry. So somehow they they printed the book and it, it was out there for people to look at, to share, to reflect upon. But There's a a young writer for the Brooklyn Rail who wrote a piece in the fall that said something to the effect of the privilege of calling this timely 
only points to how out of touch you are (laughs) with the very thing that it's trying to address. Mm -hmm. And I read that review and I was like, you are so right. So I am very, very careful to never use the word timely with this, although I am very grateful that we were able to put it out in the world at a moment when I think a critical reflection on the role of photography and policing and crime, you know, to to be able to share this broadly is an incredible privilege. But we were just lucky, really, that it was even able to be printed because it, it was really, I think it was printed in March. Yeah, I'm glad I got my copy. Good, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I haven't been prolific with my photography over the past year, I have nevertheless seen changes in the way that I see and make photographs. There's a purposefulness and a thoughtfulness that's developing. So though I'm shooting less, I'm nevertheless seeing an evolution in the way that I see and make photographs. I know that photo books have played a big part in this change. They always have, but especially now during the past year. Each new monograph has provided me a way to explore another photographer's way of seeing, but it's challenged me to reconsider what a photograph can and should be. When I receive a book from the Charcoal Book Club, what I love is that it's often a photographer I'm not familiar with. I really don't know what to expect, but when I open the pages, I'm always pleased with what I see. It's work that I know I will take my time with. It's just that kind of pleasure that I hope you'll take advantage of by subscribing to Charcoal today. They work with incredibly talented photographers and quality publishers to provide you amazing selections. They offer free shipping to the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, you can swap it out for a different one of similar value. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember, use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Last month was the 15th anniversary of the Candid Frame. I was so preoccupied with other things, I forgot to mention it. So it's funny that I could forget something that has shaped the direction of my life. And thanks to the many of you who support The Candid Frame financially since the very beginning. Your contributions have helped us from the days when we were just figuring out how to do this thing until today. It's your financial contributions that have sustained us during the various phases of the show. And without you, the show wouldn't be what it is today. Our show may not be the biggest thing in podcasting, but we have always appreciated the dedication and loyalty many of you have with TCF. You can help contribute to our work by becoming a Patreon supporter today if you haven't already. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe. Just $5 a month makes a big difference. Thank you for being with us for the last 15 years, and I'm looking forward to sharing more with you in the coming months and years to come. 
Well, one of the questions I, I have for you in, in relation to sort of race is is with uh, with respect to acquisitions with 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 museums because I, th I think I was reading something recently where or I saw it in the documentary that a very small percentage of the actual collections that, that the museum may have uh, are represent represent artists of of color. And you've been with the museum for over over twenty years, and I'm really, I would really would love to hear about what changes have made have happened at MoMA to sort of address address that. Thank you. That's a great question. I will say my first big project at the museum, and I was only you know I was like a little cog. Well, I, yeah, I was a little cog. I was the curatorial assistant for Roy DiCarava's retrospective in 1995. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, I remember that. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, so I'll say, it. while you were absolutely right, black photographers have been grossly underrepresented relative to their achievement in at MoMA and other museums around the world. My particular perspective is a little bit skewed by the fact that I worked for Peter Galassi for whom bringing forward black voices and black artists and supporting black curators was part of his DNA. And so uh, the, you know, the work that he put into the DiCarava retrospective and, you know, and I was involved, like I photocopied every scrap of paper at the Schomburg Center. When I look at the files and I see all of the faxes that went back and forth, because that was how we communicated. It was by <laughs> fax. We didn't have email. Anyway, with that as the and of course, I wrote my undergraduate thesis uh, on a white photographer named Danny Lyon, but he was the first staff photographer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, where he went in 1963 and made a tremendous number of important pictures. So I don't know. I for I'm fortunate in that putting forward these issues and op, ideally black photographers achievements is something I've been able to do and something that has long been supported at the museum at MoMA in particular, when mm -hmm. I say the, the museum capital M MoMA, but that doesn't mean that there isn't much more to do, whether it's at, MoMA or everywhere else. And one of, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm actually leaving the museum in May. Yeah, I, do. I want to and, talk about that before. Okay. So anyway, so I don't want to spoil that part of the story, but I hope to carry forward a lot of the best practices that have been happening at Aperture and that the museum is doing and to think, how do we, you know, I believe photography has the capacity to make the world a better place, like that questions of justice and equity, these are, these are naturally addressed through some of the greatest photographs ever made. And so I've loved thinking through these things in the context of a museum, but I'm also excited to think through them in the context of an organization that puts photography at the center. Yeah, I, you know, in trying to understand, you know, the overall process, to, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. It seems that for a long time, in terms of how work gets to a museum, it's either through private collections that are acquired by a museum or individual artists that submit bodies of work for them to be considered. Sort yeah. of. I, mean, um, I would say 
okay, keep going. Sorry. No, I'm just curious because that's okay, so I really instance, don't. That's something right. that's completely okay. new to me. So I well, don't understand. No, that. I like to think that actually curators are, and at least at MoMA, the curators take a very, very active role in how the collection grows. So to give one example of this, my colleague Leah Dickerman was working on the Jacob Lawrence um, exhibition in maybe 2014, 2015, something like mm -hmm. that. And at the time, she came across some work by Robert McNeil, who was a black Washington DC based photographer and who had done a series in 1937 that was in, he had hoped to publish in Fortune magazine that wasn't published in Fortune magazine, but it was published in Flash on the so-called Bronx slave market. And it is an incredibly powerful body of work where you can see women who are advocating for a higher daily wage than the white day employers who go to this specific corner in the Bronx to look for domestic help. And you see the negotiations in his photographs. And he, anyway, it's an, it's an incredible body of work. So Leah said to me, you know, I think uh, Robert McNeil's daughter might have some prints. Maybe you'll go take a look. And I was like, so started doing some research. I read Deb Willis's uh, important essay about it. There was one other piece by Nathan Natanson. Oh, I might be getting that wrong. Anyway, I did my homework, reached out to Susan McNeil, went down to Washington, D.C., and she and I spent the day in a storage unit in suburban Maryland, um, looking through prints in a hallway, you know, on a folding table, and came up with a group that we then purchased for the museum. And those prints have since been published in photography at MoMA. They're on the walls right now in, a, in, a, in two different collection displays. They were, anyway, they're, so it's like now these works that we worked so hard to bring to the museum collection, um, not because it was part of a, a collection, nor because the artist even approached us, but because this is part of the work that we want to do. And, you know, I'm working on an exhibition now of Brazilian modernist photography, which again is sort of coming into the collection the same way. For many, many years, many trips to Brazil, many conversations, you are, I feel very fortunate to work for a museum that wants to expand the narrative. Mm. You know, I, I feel very lucky, really. Yeah, it makes the role of a curator all the more important, at least uh, to me, than than I would have imagined bef before. In terms my, I should of say, wait, my sisters like to think that being a curator is just sort of saying like, eh, three inches to the left, eh, an inch back <laughs> to the right. And um, one of my sisters says to me, Eleanor, she's like, Sarah, just, you know, throw up the chips and let them fall and then make up a story for why they like that. I'm like, that's not what I do. <laughs> so thumbs up, I, thumbs down. That's all you right. do all day. Right. So it's, I do, I mean, when we're lucky, what we're trying to do, at least at MoMA is to is to think about what's absent and why and what can we do to make it present. Yeah. In terms of the diversity of curators, that has to be an important part of, of the changes that are happening now, because if 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 the curators are all just coming through the you know graduate school pipeline, 
the makeup of that is going to be relatively homogeneous. And so having people of different ethnicities and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic, you know, it becomes all the more difficult if you're always going to the same pool to get the people. So what are you seeing happening in, in the, you know, in the industry to sort of be able to have a, a larger pool from which to draw? So that's an excellent thing because, you know, I may, you know, I care about these things and actually my colleagues, irrespective of their skin color, care about these things. But you're right that diversifying the field is as important as diversifying the collection and that you can't just wave a magic wand and say that requiring a PhD for every curator is, you know, which is, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that is a way of reinforcing the privileges that have gotten us to where we are. And so I was fortunate to participate in a program called the Center for Curatorial Leadership in which the way our responsibility and accountability for diversifying the field in every sense of the word was intimately woven into the whole program. And thinking about the work that the Ford Foundation, that the Mellon Foundation, that those organizations have done to help create a better pipeline and more supported opportunities. I mean, personally, what I try to do is I I mentor a lot more, you know, when I, that is something that seems at a minimum, (laughs) you know, that's like, oh, great. But no, that is something I believe in. And then I guess looking at things such as who's paid for what and how, you know, their MoMA long ago abolished unpaid internships. And that is a simple and critical step toward making sure that you are not only creating opportunities that people who are not dependent on making a living, you know, have. So, you know, this is something that we all need to attend to and to attend to regularly, you know, in, and it, I don't see an expiration. It's just going to be lots of good work required for a really long time. Yeah. And even I think when things get better, then you, then you maybe can change the questions you're asking. But, but I will say, I, yes, I think it's important. It's important, not just for art, but for people. Well, tell me about your move to Aperture. I mean, you spent over two decades at, at, at MoMA, so I, I'm sure it wasn't sort of an easy decision to... No, it, it wasn't. You know, when they first approached me, they said, the, the search firm said, do you have any names? And I gave them some names. And they said, well, actually, we were hoping you might be interested. <laughs> and I thought to myself, hmm, you know, let me look again at that job description. And if you're really being honest as a curator especially, you know, there aren't that many things I'm qualified to do in the world. But when I, (laughs) I mean, I can move a picture left and right a little bit, but I don't even hang it on the wall. The preparators do that. Mm -hmm. But when I read this job description, I thought to myself, I believe in photography. I believe in its power. And although I have enjoyed the tremendous privilege of thinking through photography as one among many disciplines in modern art at MoMA. One of my favorite things that I've done at MoMA 
was to work on this online course called Seeing Through Photographs, which oh, now yeah, has it's great. almost, thank you, I mean, 375,000 learners. And when I think about that kind of reach, and many of them have never even heard of MoMA, but they care about photography. And, you know, I've worked at MoMA my whole life, so it, it's a good time to say, okay, is, are you going to do this truly forever? Or is there ever anything else that you might be interested and able to do? And the Aperture job itself, such a rich history, you know, for my Dorothea Lang project, and even for this Brazilian modernist project, there's so many things that they grappled with in the early days of the magazine that feel so central today. So one of those is one of the founders, one of the lesser known founders. So the, the founders that everyone talks about, the Newhalls, Dorothea Lange, Ansel Adams, you know, there are some really great founders. But Melton Ferris was another one of the founders who almost no one talks about. And in the second issue of the magazine, he wrote that Aperture draws no editorial boundaries between the amateur and the professional, between the pictorialist and the documentarian, between the journalist and the scholar. And I thought to myself, that is an expansive model that might help actually question some of the hierarchies in the field that have actually become so damaging as people wrestle with like, yeah. what is it? You know, what does photography mean? Gatekeepers, and I'll implicate myself in this, have tried to kind of make sense of things by saying, well, this is art and this is not. Or, But to read in Aperture Magazine in 1952 that they are interested not only in art with a capital A, but in photography with a lowercase p, and that that embraced pictorialism and documentary practices and all of these other things, that all of these things then, I was like, what would it be like to work for a place? You know, I love the magazine. I own many of their books. And what would it be to work for a place that photography was really at the center and I will say when I when I told Glenn Lowry, the director, that I was leaving, you know, he was sweetly remember, you know, saying what a loss it was for the museum. But in the same breath, he said how happy he was for me and how much he believed in the good things that would come to Aperture and the good things about change for me personally. And it it makes me feel filled with hope that that I will, you know, I'm not throwing away the 20 years that I spent at MoMA. I'm just, I'm, I'm shifting. And yeah. after it's been a long time, so it's a good thing, you know. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what you do there. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I wish me luck. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> One of the things you just said is kind of interesting in, in terms of, you know, quantifying imagery, saying that this is worthy of attention, this is important, and this can be dismissed. And I think when you're sort of entrenched in that world, it really takes a purposeful awareness of your own biases. And um, and I know that you were working with uh, photographers down in Sao Paulo. There's a, collect mm -hmm. a collective. And yeah. I'm wondering yeah. that how removing yourself from this sort of North American, Western culture, this aesthetic, helped you to gain a much better perspective in terms of the judgment calls that you make about about work. Yeah, I have to say part of also why I feel like I can leave MoMA is that this exhibition that opens on May 8th 
about the Brazilian modernist photographers. The group was called the Photocine Club Bandirante or FCCB. And they were a group of amateurs. And amateurs are largely absent from contemporary dialogue around serious photography. And one of the things that I love about their work is that not only were there these photographs that will just stop you in your tracks that are beautiful and large and striking and inventive and original, and you can see dozens and dozens of, of examples by as many photographers that just help underscored for me, why is it that I've never heard of these people? The answer to why I've never heard of them, there are two biases at least at play there. One is the geographic bias that the field has been addressing in recent decades. There is there's certainly an acknowledgement now that the cultural capitals of Western Europe and North America are not the only places from which good ideas originate. Hmm. But that that is a tenacious bias, even if it's one that's being addressed now. But the other is this bias against the amateur. When I started to dig into it, I realized that actually that bias was not held so strongly in the 1950s. So I read a press release in which Edward Steichen at MoMA was describing Brassailles and one other French photographer who I'm, oh, Cartier-Bresson. He was describing Brassailles and Cartier-Bresson as folk artists. And I thought to myself, <laughs> okay, you know, you, you just, you start to realize that like the hierarchies get established when people feel the need to say, to make sense of things that maybe ought be better addressed by just saying, this is like a, an unruly medium. And you as a photo historian need to learn how to be comfortable in that. So my, my exercise of judgment of, of like actually saying, you know, judgment can be as invisible as the air you breathe. You know, what do you like? And then how do you justify what you like? And when I look at the work of the Photocynic Club Bandirange, there are pictures of kittens and misty landscapes and little girls with bows in their hair. And I'm going to say that those are so cliched, they are not as good in my judgment as some of the other works. But the way that you get away with that is first to acknowledge it and say, I am exercising my judgment, even parts of it that I know I might not be able to recognize. And then you do your work, you do your history. And I found actually incredible evidence. They published a monthly magazine in which they critiqued one another's work and they published the scorecards. So the title of my essay in the book is basically in Portuguese, Excellent, good, fair, poor, colon, judging post-war photography in Brazil, because that's what they did to themselves. And there's enough of a historical record of that, that I can hold their judgment up against mine. Oh, that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. But they, they actually, they published those kittens on the cover of the magazine. And so <laughs> it's, they, I would say they were also very pragmatic. They, they wanted a big tent mm. and a little bit, I think I'm taking that forward to Aperture with me in that while I care so much about photographers who think of themselves as artists who are working with a camera, I am also, I'm interested in anyone who's interested in photography and I want Aperture to, to speak to that. And 
that is something I've learned very recently in my career. Like this exercise has been something new for me. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Mm. Tricky. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go with one about whom until my photo clubismo book comes out, nothing has been written in. Well, no, that's not true. Okay. Gertrudis Altschul, G-E-R-T-R-U-D-E-S, and her last name is A-L-T-S-C-H-U-L. So she was a German-born Brazilian photographer who joined the Photocine Club at, in 1952, and she died in 1962. So there's only one decade of her mm, career. Wow. But she was amazing. And she was one, you know, the the FCCB members were largely amateurs, which meant they were they had day jobs, bankers, doctors, lawyers, civil servants, everything like that. Her day job was that she and her husband made artificial flowers for millinery and sort of decoration. So she always was thinking about leaves and flowers, you know, making them out of, I don't know what, felt, fabric, whatever she was making them out of. Some of her most inventive photographs for the FCCB are actually pictures of leaves in various permutations. And it's a rare connection between an FCCB member's day job and their, and their hobby their, that they pursued in their leisure time. And she, there are going to be 10 of her photographs on view at MoMA um, this summer. And also MOSPI, the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo, is doing a one-person exhibition of her work that's going to open, I oh, think, in wow. August. And so, and they're doing a book of just her work. And I'm, I wrote a short essay for that. So, so there are two, there are a couple good online essays. Um, and anyway, there'll be, there'll be a little something to discover there, but she's a, she's a good illustration of why you should always keep looking for what you don't know. Because if I had never heard of her name before 2014, and now I can't imagine thinking about photography without her. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Sarah for joining us. You can find out more about her, her work, and her books by visiting sarahmeister.net. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Jacques Rupp, John Falavalita, Neil James, and Peter Harrison for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music 
can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.